as you all know, we're doing a, um, a series which maps the journey of the early church between Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, all the way through to Pentecost. So this is the penultimate of that series where we're focusing on the ascension. Now the ascension, in, for us, we actually really would celebrate the ascension on Thursday just gone, which is the 40 days after Easter. But this is the closest Sunday. So Jesus was on the earth for 40 days following his resurrection. And in the Bible, 40 is a, a number of real significance. It designates a period of transition or testing or a period of a trial. The rains flooded the earth for 40 days during Noah's time. Elijah went 40 days without food or water. Moses spent 40 days in the presence of God on Mount Sinai when he received the commandments. The Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years. Ezekiel lay on his side for 40 days in a prophetic act. Jesus fasted 40 days before he began his ministry. The first three human kings of Israel, Saul, David and Solomon, each reigned for 40 years. But during this period of 40, the 40 days between Jesus rising from the dead and his ascension back to heaven, he appeared to his disciples a number of times. After he had first risen from the dead, he appeared and the disciples touched his scars, needing to prove to themselves that he was real. He met them on the journey, on the road they were on, connecting with their sorrow, with their grief. He appeared in their midst, suddenly, through locked doors, completely unannounced and startling them. He met them after a hard night's fishing and gave them an instruction that would turn around the fortunes of the work they had done and they caught a massive catch of large fish. Over these 40 days, he replaced their doubt with certainty. He removed the consequence of their denial. He replaced fear with faith. Jesus' appearance among them changed their relationship with him. He changed their hearts, restoring their joy, their peace and their certainty as he opened their minds. This 40 days opened their eyes as he revealed the scriptures to them. He demonstrated who he was and he showed them that the prophecies concerning the Messiah had been fulfilled in him and through him. The Messiah they were expecting was the anointed one. That's what the word Messiah means. It was the king of the Jews, the one who would rescue them from their oppression, free them from the Romans who made life difficult in so many ways. He was also called the Christ, Christ is the Greek word that means the same as the Hebrew word Messiah. It's the anointed one, the one chosen by God. They expected a deliverer. And they did get a deliverance, but not the one they were expecting. The prophecies had to be fulfilled. And that meant every single one of them. The disciples would have been familiar with the scriptures and they knew the prophecies concerning the coming Messiah. 
Only the one sent by God could and would fulfill all the prophecies made, all the promises made about him. It's interesting that this morning we've already gone to Isaiah 53, and I want to just go briefly, it's not for the screen, but Isaiah 52. So just before, it's still talking about Jesus as the servant king. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He'll be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And that's the beginning of the couple of chapters that talks about the work that Jesus did on the cross. And it starts with the end. He will be high and lifted up, not only on the cross, but he'll also be exalted. This section also goes on to talk about how his appearance was marred even beyond human semblance. Describing how he took our sin, our sickness, everything that separates us from God, so we could be redeemed back to the Father through the Son. In this prophecy, Isaiah saw the same one who was pierced for our transgressions, marred for sin that we have as being high and lifted up, no longer as the God who came to earth as a man, but now the man who ascended to heaven as God. Earthly ministry fulfilled, the finished work of the cross completed by him taking his rightful place in heaven. Psalm 110, verse 1, which I think we have a slide for. The Lord, that is the Father, says to my Lord, that is the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And that means completely subjugating them into complete submission. See, Jesus had to ascend so he could be seated at the right hand of the Father. If he didn't go back to heaven, how could that prophecy be fulfilled? How could he sit there at the right hand of God? There are two main passages that talk about the ascension of Jesus. So let's look first at the one in Luke. This is Luke chapter 24 from verse 49 through 53. And behold, I am sending you the promise of the Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. There are four elements to this, as I see it. Number one, there was a promise. I'm sending you the promise of my father. And he later talks about it being clothing them with power. So there's a promise of God there. There's an instruction, number two, to stay in the city. They had to wait. Three, there was a blessing. Though it doesn't tell us what the blessing was. It doesn't tell us the word spoken. It may have been a familiar blessing that we can find in what we now know as the Old Testament. Or it may have been personal to them. But either way, Jesus was in the act of blessing them. He had his hands lifted over them and he was blessing them 
as he was taken from them. It doesn't say that he rose to heaven. He didn't jump Superman style and start flying through the sky. He was taken from heaven. And we'll come back to that in a minute. And the fourth thing is a response. There was a response from the disciples. They worshipped him. The doubt, fear, uncertainty, they've all disappeared. They were filled with spontaneous worship as they witnessed this event. Once they returned to Jerusalem, they spent their time in the temple praising and blessing God. Their initial response was worship, filled with the awe of God, worshipping God for who he is. After a little reflection, and the event sunk in just a little bit, they praised God for what he had done. And they obeyed the instruction. They went back to Jerusalem. It's only a couple of miles down the road, but they went back as they'd been instructed to do, and they waited. To be in the middle of such an experience and wait takes courage, it takes faith, and it takes trust. Imagine you've just seen your friend, your teacher, taken up into heaven. Final prophecies about his earthly ministry are fulfilled. And what do you do? Go hire a stadium and tell everybody. No, you go and you wait. What do you say to people? Do you proclaim it to everybody? No, you've been told to wait. And sometimes, when there's a revelation of God, the right response is to wait. From a position of faith and trust, sometimes we're asked to wait for the promise to be fulfilled. Let's look now at the account in Acts. It's also written by Luke, but it gives a different, a different flavour. So from Acts 1, verses 9 to 11. And when they heard these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and the cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Amen. He was taken up. This was passive on the part of Jesus. A cloud took him out of their sight. Now the Greek word used here for cloud is the same as the Hebrew word that's used in 2 Chronicles 5, verses 14. I'm going to read 13 and 14 just to give the context. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison, in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments, in praise to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Same word as is used about the cloud that took Jesus up to heaven. It's the Father, the presence of the Father reaching down and pulling back his son 
back to himself. It's very unlikely, although we're not given the full detail, it's very unlikely that it was a white fluffy cloud that came and transported Jesus away. It's much more likely that it was a glory cloud, the glory of God, the presence of God. It was completely passive on Jesus' part. He was engaged in talking. He was blessing his disciples. And the presence of God came and lifted him, took him back to heaven. We think about the disciples' response. If we cast our mind back 40 days, on the first Easter morning, they found themselves in a similar position. They went to the grave where they expected Jesus to be. And there were two men in dazzling robes stood at the tomb that Jesus had been in. And the angel said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, he's risen. And that's in Luke 24, 4 and 5, if you want to look it up later. At that point, he transitioned from dead to alive. He was risen. The angels appeared and they said, he's not here. You're looking in the wrong place. He's not in the tomb. When Jesus ascended, the disciples quite naturally, in the human sense, were looking up to the sky. You would, wouldn't you? Somebody's just, this glory cloud or whatever kind of cloud comes and takes somebody up. You're going to be following. And the angels come and say, you're looking in the wrong place. (laughs) He's going to come back this way. But he's not here, he's not in the sky. The whole age would pass by, is still passing by, between Jesus ascending and Jesus returning. And during that time, although this was unspoken by the angels, they did say he's coming back the same way. So they drew a link. He's ascending and then he's going to come back the same way. And what happens in the meantime is they were told to wait for the outpouring, the outpouring of power. So in that interlude between him going to heaven and him coming back from heaven, there's what? There's an outpouring of power. Power comes and more power and more power and more Holy Spirit and more Holy Spirit and more Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit keeps coming, keeps filling us up, keeps empowering us all the way until the end of the age, until Jesus comes back. And he will come back in bodily form in the same way. If you have a look at Mark 16, verses 19 to 20. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Now this passage comes immediately after the Great Commission, as it's recorded in Mark, where he gives them the authority to heal the sick, to preach the gospel, to cast out demons. He gives them the authority. And following this, he's ascending. They then go out and they preach everywhere. By ascending to heaven, Jesus completed the finished work of the cross. Seated at the right hand of God, he was then able to give them the power by pouring out the Holy Spirit. He'd given them the authority. Then he was to give them the power. But that comes next week, for the early church at least. But they, of course, didn't know when it was coming. They just knew they had to wait for the promise to be fulfilled. It might have been the next day. It might have been the next year. They didn't know. 
They just knew they had to be obedient to the word of God and wait. Ephesians 4 verse 8, which is a quote of Psalm 68 verse 18, says, Therefore he says, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Everything that holds men and women in bondage was dealt with at the cross. Everything. The ascended Messiah, triumphant over Satan, triumphant over every rebellious spirit that went with Satan out of heaven, was cast out with him out of heaven for thinking he was better than God. Every one of those is defeated. And the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, he becomes the giver of gifts to men. The one who would pour out the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts to the church. I think it's really interesting that when Jesus ascended, he was in the act of delivering a blessing. And now that he's in heaven, what is he doing? He's delivering a blessing. He's continued. That act that he was doing in the physical world was taken up to heaven and he's still there praying for the church, hands extended over us, praying for us, blessing us. A promise was still to come for the early church in the first century, the Holy Spirit. But already they were filled with joy. They exalted God, praising him in the temple. For us, we know the promise. We already have the promise fulfilled. But they had that uncertainty still. But despite that, their hearts were filled with so much joy and so much praise that I imagine them running to the temples and praising God. They were so excited. Well, you would be, wouldn't you? Seeing this glory cloud come and somebody just taken from you. Colossians 3, verse 1 and 3. If you're raised with Christ... Seek those things which are above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. And then verse 3, For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We are hidden with Christ in God. Every aspect of our lives, every aspect of our surrendered lives, every aspect of our lives that is dead to ourselves is hidden in God. God has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. And that's from Psalm 103. If we're hidden with Christ, we're co-heirs with him. We're given authority by him. We're able to approach boldly the throne room of God. We're able to access the heavenly realms where he is. If we're hidden with him, we are where he is. In, in Act 7, and this isn't on the screen, when Stephen was martyred, there's a verse, Act 7, um, 5 and 6, that says, sorry, 56, Behold, he says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So he, Jesus, he goes and he's seated at the right hand of God. But in that moment when Stephen was being stoned, it's like a football match. He's seated at the right hand of God. And he stands up. Come on, lad, you can do it. Stay with it. Keep your eyes on me. Stay focused on me. 
And that's when Jesus advocates for us. And he stands to his feet, I believe, at those points in our lives when we need that blessing the most, when we need that advocacy from the Son. He stands to his feet to cheerlead us, to encourage us. Say, come on, come on, son, you can do it. The true king of the Jews, the Messiah, took his place on the throne of heaven 40 days after defeating what separated us from the Father with the promise to pour out the Holy Spirit. He reigns not for 40 years like the first kings of the Jewish people, but he reigns forever. The risen, ascended king, reigning on high and pouring down his gifts on us to this day and even to the end of the age, praying to the Father for us from a place of victory with the promise as it was then of the Holy Spirit now being poured out on us, the blessing he was speaking when he was taken still being spoken over us today, reigning in majesty and giving freely to his people all the time until he comes again. May we always be receptive to his promise, obedient to his instruction, and ready to walk in his power. In his name, the risen, ascended, glorified, magnified King Jesus. Amen.